we are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrence Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hello fellow time travellers, Tony Whit here. Not long after we recorded this episode, we received the terrible news that Michael Jaston, who played the Valiard in Trial of the Time Lord, had died. We would like to dedicate this episode to his memory. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Michael Jaston, the Valiard, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the heavy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That is probably the most descriptive one we have had in a while because it certainly applies here mm. uh, to the whole project. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-so-heavy four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. And that's true, too. I've lost three pounds, so that's progress. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. There's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. And finally, there's our special guest for this episode, the host of the Talking Trek to You podcast and former host of the Talking Who to You podcast, J.G. McQuarrie. Hello, J.G. Hello. Thank you for having me back on. And thank you for coming back. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive something. Just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. <laughs> Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them in a hollowed-out planet guarded by giant wood lice. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. You know, come to think that having your books guarded by wood lice probably isn't the best idea. I was going to say, yeah. Termites are on strike. Wouldn't have any left at the end of the day. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, 
Bart Lamney, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor, Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Mills, and Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, got a little dizzy there for a second. Oh, dear Lord. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the Peter Davison era with the novelization of Frontios. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Frontios, adapted by Christopher H. Bidney from a script that aired from 12684 to 2384, published by Target Books in December 1984. As of this recording in February 2024, this title is out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 143 pages. Interestingly enough, kind of like last time, we are recording this the day after the 40th anniversary of the airing of the final episode of this story. Mm-hmm. So we're just within that bubble. Sadly, that's not something we'll be able to keep doing, as the next story was delayed, for reasons that we will get into. Our next episode... We can delay. Well, well, we'll (laughs) kind of have to, because next time we've got two books to read for that one, and an interview with the author of one of them to do, so it's going to take us a while. Spoiler alert, it's not Eric Sayward. Mm. (laughs) I don't think Eric Sayward would ever speak to us, given all the things we've said about him. (laughs) (laughs) We've already talked about Christopher H. Bidmead, who served as John Nathan Turner's first script editor and who previously wrote Tom Baker's swan song, Castrovalva, and Peter Davison's debut, Legopolis. Bidmead was more than happy to return to the show strictly in a writing capacity, but he was reportedly less happy that producer JNT wanted a monster of some sort in this one. You'll note that all of the stories this season, bar one have them. And that one that doesn't have a monster is coming up. This ain't it. Bidmeet found his inspiration both in the news reports of the shelling of Beirut in the Lebanon War and in the woodlice that infested a former house of his. <laughs> yeah. The name Tractators, which I always have to pause to say in order to get it right for reasons I'll soon go into, was an anagram of attractors and not an homage to tractor poles, as you might think. (laughs) His original script actually included everything we get on the page, including the Tractator's Human Remains Recycling Program and the Gravis' version of Google Translate. Yeah. Yeah, but this was considered a little too much for this show, even given the direction it was about to go in. I have a feeling that if this had been done for the next season we might have gotten attempts at those two things. The final scene on screen is significantly different than the one we get in the book, mainly because it wasn't written by Bidmead. It was inserted by Eric Sayward, who, surprise, surprise, was using it to dovetail into the next story, which he had written. Two tragedies... I can't say that word. Two tragic events struck this production. The original designer, Barry Dobbins, was undergoing severe mental health problems at the time and was replaced by David Buckingham, and then Dobbins committed suicide soon after this. The one that everybody read about in the newspapers at the time, though, was the murder of the actor originally cast to play Mr. Range, Peter Arney. And, JG, am I pronouncing that last name correctly? Uh, I think so, yeah. It sounds right to me. 
Yeah, I've never heard it pronounced aloud, weirdly enough. I'm sure it's on the DVD of the Frontios uh, story, but he was murdered by a vagrant whom he had taken in on the night of the very day he'd gone in for his costume fitting. Mm. He hadn't taken the vagrant in that very day. The vagrant had actually been staying with him, and there was some intimation that maybe it was a lover who things had gone wrong with, and then the vagrant's body ended up in the, I believe it was the Thames, and the belief was that he had drowned himself in remorse. But, yeah, so that's who was originally going to play Mr. Range, and the actor William Lucas quickly replaced him, like, really fast. Also, while not so much a tragedy, this production was hampered by two other problems. The Tractator costumes, which sadly could not roll up into balls, as would lice do, and the fact that in order to save money for the next two stories, this one was confined entirely to the studio. And at times it shows. Hmm. You would think that with those two things being said that I would hate the story. I actually don't for reasons which, which we will get into. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? JG, I know you've just moved flats, but do you have the book available to read the back copy of? I do. And, you know, there's a few things I enjoy more than being able to give a dramatic reading for you guys. Awesome. <laughs> The TARDIS has drifted far into the future and come to rest hovering over Frontios, refuge of one group of survivors from Earth who have escaped the disintegration of their home planet. The Doctor is reluctant to land on Frontios as he does not wish to intervene in a moment of historical crisis. The colonists are still struggling to establish themselves and their continued existence hangs in the balance. But the TARDIS is forced down by what appears to be a meteorite storm and crash lands, leaving the Doctor and his companions marooned on this hope-forsaken planet. Very good. Thank you for that, JG. So, let's talk about first impressions. Dalton, when you first got this book, what was your first impression? Hearing the name Frontios, I did not know what to expect. I didn't know if it was going to be... A planet, of course, just looking at the front cover. I didn't know if it was what these creatures were. I didn't know if it was going to be some organization. And then getting to the back cover, the the answer is there. Okay, it's a planet. But other than kind of just the first few pages being described, this is another back cover that doesn't give us too much of an idea of where the story is going, other than the doctor for once, <laughs> doesn't want to intervene, even though we know that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so once I started reading, I had actually forgotten that I, I remembered Bidmead's name, but I couldn't remember which stories he wrote, and I didn't I didn't go back and look. But I remembered liking his writing before and quickly uh, remembered that, yes, yes, he, he's a good writer. We do like this writer. He, he does well with these stories. So yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this book uh, once once I got through with it. I felt it was a little long, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Okay. And Allison, what was your first impression? I can't say I was really into the cover illustration of the lovingly rendered shine on the insect mouth parts. <laughs> was that maybe the most appetizing thing I'd ever seen? Uh, back certainly uh, plays a bit coy with what we're going to read. I would never have guessed Powder Post Beetles with Body Horror was coming. Mm. But I'm sorry, now I know it's Woodlice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wrong burrowing insect. Right. So I didn't have a strong impression based on the cover other than you. 
<laughs> well, that's always an interesting first impression. <laughs> well, but we found that the connection between the cover illustration and the contents can be tangential. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if that tractator hadn't appeared on the cover, you might be hard pressed to really know what was going on because even the text plays the cards close to the chest, which is kind of a nice touch and a nice deviation for these books. Uh, JG, what was your first impression? You saw this when it first went out, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. I kind of, I mean, I volunteered for this story because I, I love Christopher H. Bidmead as a writer. He's one of my favorite writers of the classic show. And so the opportunity to talk about him and him kind of doing his own novelization of his script is, is was just too good to pass up. I couldn't possibly not do that. Um, and I probably haven't read this book again I think maybe since it was released, but it's amazing how much of it came back. I felt like I came to this almost fresh, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was well written. I do agree it's maybe just a touch long. There's just a couple of bits which feel like they drag on slightly, but overall, it's really refreshing. It's it's nice to read a writer who has a little bit more scope than than you know like standard Terence Dicks or or whatever, and and I think he does bring a lot of really interesting stuff to to the target line. Yeah, in fact, my first impression of the story was the book, because as I've said before, I had a subscription to the Target books for about a year, and during that year, we got Frontios. So this is my first encounter with the story. And in fact, I think I read this book before I even read the Doctor Who magazine review of it, which would have been interesting. So I didn't have anything spoiled for me, and this book wows me. It still wows me. So much so that, and this is probably kind of a rarity for me, I cannot watch the televised version mm. without a sense of, oh, <laughs> <laughs> what there could have been if they just had the budget and the time and occasionally the actors <laughs> and the costumes and all. Yeah, this is the sort of story that the new series would just knock out of the park. The original series kind of still does. It's, it's a good televised story if you haven't read the book. If you've read the book, it can possibly ruin the televised story for you because this, bo this book is so much better. Well, let's talk about that then, because I think we have all said we've liked Christopher H. Bidmead's books in the past, and JG, as you said, you specifically requested this one because of that. What did we like about this one in particular? Well, one of the, one of the first things that, that leapt out to me was when we were talking about the caves and He's describing the lights and the phosphorus lights that they're using and just the weird kind of like dim green glow. And that already kind of sets like a weird kind of eerie before we even get to any of the body horror stuff, which is just absolutely disgusting. Uh, before we even get there, just that kind of green glow that described in these tunnels i was like yeah this this is gritty this is kind of gives you that feeling of like the colonial um i kept thinking about like the first american colonies how bare bones they were and you know they're just kind of using bits and pieces of what they have to carry on and so just yeah immediately the phosphorus lights just i was like yeah ugh, would not want to yeah. be there <laughs> 
Bidmead does small details like that extremely well, to a degree that very few other writers do. In fact, we um, talked about the fact that when we did Castrovalva, Allison, you pointed out that you, you kind of had a hint in the prose that they were in a reality that wasn't quite reality, because while in Castrovalva, even the food didn't taste quite real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... <laughs> That sort of attention to detail is kind of rare, especially even with somebody like Terrence Dix, who does good work on these, but he's also not quite as invested to the degree that Bidmead is for this one, I think. Mm-hmm. What else did we like? I really like the way that he writes Tegan. Oh, yes. uh, it's really nice to see somebody write Tegan as an intelligent character. And I think he gets Tegan in a way that almost no other writer really does. There's a lot of exceptions. So obviously, we have Kind and Snake Dance, and there's great material there. Uh, but it's really nice to have a writer who understands that she isn't just this kind of shrill complaint machine, which is how a lot of people <laughs> kind of reduce her character. And that's such a shame because where we have her here, like, she is obviously scared she's worried about the situation but she's also intelligent she's able to make deductions she, she can go off and explore and, and investigate stuff by herself she isn't just this uh, sort of shrieking sort of noise and it's he's got such a good grasp of, of Tegan's character almost to the point where like Turlo almost feels like sort of the third character of the three which is a bit weird given how much of the story depends on him but like right. if the if, if the side effect of that is that Tegan is actually written as a real character with like internal some sort of degree of sort of internal logic and, and understanding and intelligence then it's kind of a, a fair trade off I just I adore the way that he writes Tegan I love the fact that in the story itself he kind of makes her into a literal complaining machine just so the doctor can save her life. The doctor says she's an android and hasn't been properly uh, programmed not to complain. (laughs) And I adore that. I absolutely adore that. But you're right. I think it comes from... I think a lot of it comes from the fact that Bidmead would have been the first writer to write her. And I don't know if you could really say he created the character, but yeah, I'd say that's a, a fair guess. And it's almost as if the other writers were going for her more negative qualities, even as the actors themselves making the stories were trying to diminish those to some degree. And she shines in this. She's absolutely marvelous. I feel like other writers often write her as ultimately smart and insightful, but sometimes a writer seems to resent having to acknowledge that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because they're so annoyed by her. Terrence Dudley being one of them. Yeah, I think he really doesn't like Tegan. And I'm come to think of it, I'm not sure Terrence Dix is all that fond of her either the few times he writes her. But yeah, Bitmeat is really good when it comes to writing Tegan. And I agree with you, JG, on the whole Turlo thing. He, he feels almost like an afterthought, even though he is a vital part of the plot, which is, oh, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up. He's one of the few writers who acknowledges that Turlo is alien. Mm. The fact that Turlo has other knowledge because he's from another planet, that is the sort of thing that rarely comes up in any appearance of Turlo. We talked about the Five Doctors, for instance, and the fact that Turlo and Susan are left in the TARDIS because essentially they're the unearthly children, but they also have no real purpose in the plot. Whereas here... 
lots of purpose in the plot. JG, do you think it's a blessing or a curse that we don't get to see Mark Strickson's performance on the page? I think Mark Strickson's performance is one of the really good indicators of kind of how wasted he was on Doctor Who. I actually really like his on-screen performance here, but I understand why not everybody does. But he kind of, like, he goes so far over the top, but he also kind of lands it. And I think he does a very good job of, like, that whole kind of foaming at the mouth ancestral memory race memory nonsense is just like no actor can play that well there's there's no way around that but i think he gives it a really good shot and and it's a good indication of the quality of an actor when they can manage to make that performance seem genuine when they can make it seem like it's something that the character is actually going through because it's such a hard thing to be able to do i do think it comes off a little bit more controlled on the page and i think for a a novel that probably is the right approach i think if we had descriptions of him foaming at the mouse and thrashing about and it like really went terribly melodramatic in the prose it would end up undermining it but christopher h bidmead isn't that kind of prose writer so i kind of like i miss his performance but i also i i i i I feel very sympathetic towards Mark Strickson because I do think he was kind of wasted in the show. And his performance in Frontius is one of the reasons I think that. But I know there's plenty of people that really dislike his performance here, and I can kind of understand why as well. Watch, long ago, on my home. You remember them? We remember them. The people of my planet will never forget. Tractators. Once, long ago, my home was an infection. Yeah, I'm not one of them. I actually prefer his performance here to the other over-the-top moments that he's had in the past. (laughs) (laughs) He's had a few. But um, this one, you're right, it, it fits because he's having to show a character who's just completely hobbled by memories from thousands of years ago coming flooding through his brain and he actually nails it and bless his heart mark strickson goes that extra mile and does indeed foam at the mouth it is really disturbing to look at i would not have gotten that from from Mm -hmm. the novelization yeah i got my usual i mean i always love turlow everyone who writes him just, I'm endlessly entertained by his like weird offbeatness and combination of ticks. It's like you see him starting with you know fastidiously wrapping a handkerchief around his hand against the rust and whatnot. <laughs> his usual sort of fussy, both menacing and a total hypochondriac chicken uh, combination always mm-hmm. amuses me. But it had been a while since we had read him having a more uh, dramatic arc here, and I actually thought it might be his last story. I thought he would uh, not survive. Until through the last page. I thought that there would be some sort of self-sacrifice because only he knows that you have to, I don't know, walk directly into the mouth in order to kill the creature or something, (laughs) you know, something like that. But uh, so I was actually pleased he survived. I I did not get the over the top foaming in the mouth. That's interesting. It didn't translate to the page. Perhaps for the best, it sounds like. Yeah, it's not it's not written that way, and I, and I agree with you, Allison. It definitely, it was more reserved, and it definitely came across as a, kind of a, a slow brooding kind of memory that came up. And, and two, I thought, I didn't think it was maybe his last story, but I did think it was going to kind of lead into his last story. And I thought that maybe somehow Frontios was going to be part of his, some, his race or 
you know, these humans somehow are, I don't know, we don't know his timeline. We don't know exactly when he's from, and we as yet don't know where he's from. Yeah, I, I thought that maybe this story was going to give us a little bit more of that background with Turlo, but uh, the little bits that we do get are interesting enough uh, to know that, that he does have some kind of greater um, story going on, and, we, and we'll eventually learn more of that. I usually read the way he's written as sort of melodramatic flat affect. <laughs> like he thinks he's being stone-faced, but he's actually being quite the drama queen. So I, so maybe I was reading in from other novelizations here that when he actually is being dramatic on purpose, people don't pick up on it at first mm-hmm. until he looks you know, clearly terrified and out of character because he's just always like that. Hmm. There's at least one bit that's missing from the televised version, and I'm kind of glad it's missing. Because Turlo can be mean, but he's unnecessarily mean at the beginning of the story when he's reading the description of Frontios off the TARDIS databank, and he's obviously teasing Tegan with, this is how your race is going to end. <laughs> 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 mm. Doctor's reading it. Oh, the, the great the great what? Yes. Well, you know... <laughs> Things happen. Everyone has their ups and downs. Yeah, and then the doctor has to say, all right, that's enough. But (laughs) he's got a very mischievous turn in this, especially when it comes to the shaking of the phosphor lamp. These are a terrible fire hazard in this sort of container, you know. You'd better hold it steady then, hadn't you? How does it work? Well, it's electron excitation. If you give them a shake, they get a bit Ah, right. Stop that, would you? I love that bit. There's also a line that is amazing, and it kind of sums up Turlo. After they come back, Norna says, well, nobody expects you to go back down into the tunnels, and he says, of course not, I'm Turlo. Mm-hmm. It's just a nice bit of self-deprecation. It's like, yeah, I, I know what a piece of shit I am. <laughs> <laughs> She's everything, he's just Turlo. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And yet we also get that lovely little character beat as well, where he has the coin and he like blows through it for good luck, which again is such a throwaway detail, but it implies so much about who he is and and where he comes from and and how much artifice there is in the way that he kind of presents himself because when he's occasionally like lets his guard down, like he has a really nice rapport and uh, sort of relationship with with Norna in, in, in the book. I think it comes across really, really strongly how they're kind of almost flirting with each other, but also they're just yes. friends. It's it's a, it's a really nice kind of nuanced thing. So when you see him dropping his guard and, and sort of admitting to like this lucky kind of superstition, like you couldn't imagine him doing that with Tegan. Um, and so we get that nice little insight into his character. And again, it, it, it just shows what skillful writer uh, Christopher H. Bidme did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the fact that he has a coin in both hands, mm-hmm. so he's not even giving himself the choice. He's just pretending that he's giving himself a choice, and I love that. I absolutely adore that. Uh, in fact, that might be part of the reason why you may have thought this was his last story, because he's got that flirtatiousness with Norna, and you could very well imagine him staying behind to stay with her. Mm-hmm. I thought they might go for broke. He decides to stay behind to stay with her. And then dies instead. Oh. The double feature. Not the double feature, but... Mm-hmm. The... Oh. Turlo is not into girls. I'm sorry. Turlo is not into <laughs> girls, okay? Well, that's why I'm saying they would never actually have him end up that way. It might be It might be a feint for some other plot. Like him deciding, oh, you know, I could rule this planet happily or something like that. But he might say he was 
he was going to stay with her. I don't think that's what JG meant, though. <laughs> no, no. He, oh, I understand. He, yes. he has to hang on so that he can leave in a planet where he's surrounded by go-go boys and nothing more than slightly oversized nappies. That's the. I mean, there's a message yes. there. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. I don't know. I, I I get it. I I wasn't I wasn't suggesting that it was actually his uh, honorable intention. <laughs> yes. Thank you for thank you for that preview, though, because you're right. That's exactly what that story looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons why I appreciate it so much. Are you saying that there's no human man hot enough to uh, sustain Turlo's attentions and affections? Yes. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm fair enough. I'm to cull heads. <laughs> right. You know things we don't yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think even in Turlo's last story, we're not going to get a lot of the real pressing questions we have about him clarified. Because... You'll see when we get there. And I I haven't read it since I got it the first time in the 80s, but I'm not even sure that book about him and his problems with his internet service provider that we're going to be reading it actually does it either. Nobody gets that joke anymore. I'm sorry, I'm sorry we're going to be reading what now? It, it's called <laughs> the standalone novels. Yeah, Turlo oh. and the Earthlink Dilemma. And Earthlink was famously, in, well, not so famously, an ISP in the 90s in America. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's get back to Frontios. Oh, God. What else did we like about this book? I enjoyed the character of Cockerel. Mm. He, he's almost like a non-entity, but he has, like, I don't, he, he's just, he's an enigma. Like, how is this person part of the orderlies, but he just basically is a fuck off, just, like, (laughs) running around stealing food, not actually doing his job when he's supposed to be doing it, ends up kind of defecting and becoming a retractor, but not really. It's more just like... (laughs) <laughs> Brazen's just kind of had enough of him. <laughs> uh, and even then, when he goes to join them, he's, like, getting sucked down into the earth and somehow, like... But only kind of. Yeah. <laughs> even that, halfway. Halfway, does it? <laughs> and he's just, like... Yeah, he's, like... He's, like, this kind of Joker fool character that's kind of there for comedic relief, in a way, but ends up, at the end, it seems that he's going to rule yeah. side by side. I don't, I don't know, but he's he's very enjoyable. I love the way he's written. It was nice to have that bit of lightness in in a story that could be so heavy, especially with the body toll that maybe we don't see, but is hinted at, and we see the remnants of. Yeah, that that character I had such expectations for when I read this book. Uh, for seeing him on screen and seeing how he'd be depicted there. And I don't know if JG agrees with me on this, but I think that the actor who plays Cockerel is a little undercooked. A little. (laughs) (laughs) He's lovely to look at. I mean, my type anyway. But apart from that, no, he, he hasn't really tapped into the possibilities for that character. And... It would be nice to be able to interview him and ask him what he was thinking, but weirdly enough, Maurice O'Connell went missing in the 1990s and is still missing as of 2024. Hmm. Nobody knows where he is. Well, the earth is hungry. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, I think Cockerell is one of the characters that is is greatly improved on the page. Yeah, I, I agree, of course. It is a pretty undercooked performance on, on screen. Um, but we get so much more going on in the book. We get a few scenes that, that aren't in the televised version. We get a sense of uh, a character who actually has like some kind of... Uh, maybe arc is too big a word, but like he at least goes through some stuff. He starts as a he starts as a, a guard, then he becomes a retrograde, then he kind of is semi rehabilitated, then he kind of takes a side uh, takes a side of uh, Plantagenet, and it's a it's a there's the shape of like a proper character arc in there. There's only so much you can do in the space of a target novelization, but it comes across so much more clearer on the page than it it does on the screen, and the performance is part of that. But I think Christopher Bidmead really has the opportunity to do something with that character that we just don't get the opportunity to have you know in the broadcast version yeah and speaking of which that moment where he apparently throws off the earth trying to suck him down when actually it's just that the tractator has been distracted it is a good moment on the page and you get the sense that the retrogrades really are like oh my god we've seen this happen so many times and he managed to survive it that's amazing we need to follow this man when you watch it on screen the outlived the hunger of the earth a man who can do that can do anything you get these uh, village people rejects <laughs> watching him in their 80s jackets and a very melodramatic, a man that can do that can do anything. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. In fact, that's the moment where I had to stop watching episode three. I was like, I, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't translate on the screen very well, but you believe it on the page so much more because Bidmead is willing to give that character so much more. And and you're right, JJ, I don't think it's so much a character arc as it is, it is a... Um, expansion i guess mm -hmm. would be a better term for it that seems to be the case for all of his colonist characters except weirdly enough for brazen but i think brazen is such a strong character to begin with we don't need a backstory or a character development for that one well he has he has a little bit of it though because he initially starts off being very wary of the doctor and he doesn't trust him and by the end once he gets the knowledge that that range has been aware of these disappearances and he's kind of putting things together then he kind of has like a, a turn a turnabout where he's like oh right yeah maybe everyone should know that this shit's going down maybe it's not good to hide it maybe like mm -hmm. i can help out in these situations so it's it's not as it's not as large of an arc but definitely i feel like he he does have some uh change of emotion by the end of it no, I, I'd agree. I'd agree. You're right. And that changeover feels a lot more earned on the page mm -hmm. because oh. on screen it still happens, but it yeah. feels almost like, oh, I've got new information. Well, that changes everything. It's yeah. Like, no, it doesn't. Yeah. God, his, <laughs> his ending. Oh. Oh. It I, is so disappointing on screen. I can't imagine what it... Because I haven't watched it, so I don't know what it looks like. But in my head, that thing is just nightmare fuel and mm -hmm. it... Yeah, I'm. I. <laughs> yes. Horrifying. I mean, the broadcast version is definitely nightmare fuel, but I think for a very different reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'd say that's the nightmare of any BBC producer who says, oh my God, we've just had to fire our designer and he unalived himself, and now we have a new one who has to do this really quickly, and this is what they came up with. 
But you know, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff that Bidmead does um, around Brazen and the way that he behaves, it, it, on the page, he has a nice little opportunity to slip in some. I don't want to say left-wing politics because that's probably overstating it, but the way that he refers to the state with a capital S or, yes. you know, like the conspiracy of silence. Like, he is hinting at things which are kind of, you know, 80s contemporary politics. Like Particularly the capital S in state implies the USSR. Um, you know, everybody is very grey, everybody is very run down, supplies are very limited. Like, I think there is a definite, albeit a fairly understated attempt to do a kind of political parallel there i don't think it amounts to very much but i do appreciate the fact that he does slightly push that in a direction that he definitely would not have been able to get away with under jnt and just those little hints those little lines that he has about the way that you know state secrets are bad or or or, you know like that kind of controlling mentality only actually leads you down a blind alley and all those kind of things that they're small details but they do amount to something they do give just that little extra touch to the way that the novel functions and that's definitely something which is not in the original version yeah brazen at one point says you can't broadcast socially sensitive information until you're in control of the facts exactly which which i mean that says it all right yeah, and that sounds like something any politician in 2024 would say. Yeah. It definitely is, and I notice this more than anything because I'm currently teaching Orwell's 1984 in a class. Go figure, because I always do. But the parallels. You can tell that Bidmead is well aware that he's writing a book in 1984 that has some elements of 1984, including those portraits of Captain Revere everywhere. It's definitely a feeling of Big Brother watching, but the colony is on such a small scale that instead of becoming a dystopian state, it does have almost some totalitarianistic touches, but they're so concerned with surviving that they don't notice them. And everything that comes out as rumors ends up, weirdly enough, mythologized. They haven't been on that planet long enough to have myths, but they do. And the myths are all about the Earth eating its own dead, mm-hmm. which is just brilliant. I love that. Frontiers eats its own dead. Mm. It's like, oh, my Lord. Doctor Who does horror really well sometimes. On screen, I'm not sure it does it quite so well, but this book, Jesus Christ. Uh, what else? I tend to try to play the game of what will I remember about this novelization <laughs> later. Um, and I, it's a game because I'm, I'm guessing I can't always anticipate accurately what I'm going to retain later, but but I find especially uh, thoughtful or or striking. I think I will remember little to nothing of the plot of uh, this book a year from now. What I will remember is, I think, the premise of a humanity that has lost all but the memory that's in the minds of survivors and lost all of its scientific and historical and apparently poli-sci recorded information so the idea that the people who survived what the catastrophe had scientific knowledge and more importantly knowledge of what 
is possible in science and industry, but didn't have their chemistry and electrical engineering textbooks, who basically have so, had some concept of what is scientifically possible to know and understand and accomplish, but have to recreate that from just human memories, which I thought very striking and also went along with talking about the political situation of they, those first survivors did also have memory of Earth history, Earth society, Earth politics, but they didn't have history texts and yeah. written political theory. And I just and that's what I will think about is the idea of rebuilding a society, not from scratch. There wasn't a memory wipeout, but from just memory without the documentation. Yeah. And I noticed that's something that kind of struck me as odd with the televised version, because when they're having the inquest and they're questioning Mr. Range, and it is Brazen's deputy who's doing it, that woman feels like she's been dropped onto the colony from some sort of political drama, (laughs) because her demeanor and such is just like, where have you been this whole time on this colony? Have you been um, doing nothing but binging episodes of The West Wing? What's what's (laughs) going on here? And she's not like that on the page, thank goodness. She actually feels like an individual rather than an apparatchnik. I I hope I'm getting that word right. She definitely feels like a political bureaucrat. And it's like, how has Frontios had the time to establish that sort of political bureaucracy? And on the page, you realize, no, it it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Their, Their reach exceeds their grasp. They are trying hard to do something like that. But no, they've been too busy trying to survive this whole time. I think one of the takeaways from that, I think, I think that is actually a really interesting character because, again, it implies a lot about the way that Frontius operates, but also about the way that the colony ship operates prior to the crash. But I think it's also one of the ones that it really shows the difference. I hope you'll excuse the, the sort of forward projection, but it, it shows the difference between the classic show and the new show because with the classic show, you have four episodes where you can have a character like that who is really only there for a plot purpose let's be honest they're there to 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 get us through the you know space murphy brown scenes and then we just move on with our lives (laughs) and and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but the thing is the the thing that reading this book reminded me of the most is uh utopia from the new series now utopia is a great episode of uh Mm. of the new show i love it but it's only got 45 minutes to establish what is essentially exactly the same premise it's the end of humanity it's the last struggling humans who want to survive there's monsters who are attacking scientific knowledge has been lost but they're doing their best to try and rebuild from the you know the fragments which have been retained there's so many parallels between frontios and utopia but frontiers has the luxury of four 25 minute episodes and in this case the novelization where they can really kind of dig into those concepts so you can have one hit characters like space murphy brown who who really does (laughs) just have that one role but where that one role can imply so much about it it's i find it kind of genuinely fascinating and i don't want that to make it sound like i'm criticizing like the structure of the new show the new show is absolutely fine and i love it of course i do and the 45 minute episode works well and utopia is a great story but it does highlight the contrast between the two and so being able to expand those roles even further on the page again i think it shows the skill of christopher h bidmead as a writer 
but it also shows that there is that scope to be able to do more when you have the luxury of that extra space. I agree. And I'm thinking specifically about one of the sequences in which they're all down in the tunnels. And Range has this moment of reflection where he says to himself, has the entire regime of Captain Revere been this? He has this moment of realization and thinks, has it been like this this whole time? I didn't even notice that it was this this strict and this secretive, even though I was part of part of that and gathering the information. And it's one of those character moments that you do not get at all in the new series, I find. And you don't get it on screen, obviously. Range doesn't have the range quite for that on screen. But yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. Oh, one other thing about parallels to other stories that take place in this general uh, time that this story does. <sighs> does anyone remember the arc? <laughs> uh, yeah it's kind of difficult to read this and then go back and either watch or read the arc and think oh my god these two stories are meant to be in roughly the same setting or roughly the same group of humans it's like there's no way in hell you just cannot square the two away it, it doesn't work and i really can't square it away with um uh the second episode of the new series why am i blanking out on the name uh, of the end of the world the end of the world there we go why did i blank out on the end of that yeah it's kind of hard to square away with that because it's like okay when did they leave earth just Bef before? just before yeah exactly <laughs> i guess and I guess the Ark people left even sooner because the fashion was still towards skirts. I don't know. I don't know. Well, in Utopia, I remember thinking, if I'm recalling correctly, that Doctor gives this talk about what's happened with humanity in broad terms up till then. And they were, I think, even like uh, in a gaseous state for a while, but they always returned to this body. And I remember thinking that... Uh, the costume designer was making a profound statement about humanity will always return to the lapel collar. Um, <laughs> but there's a challenge with production design when you have to show humanity this you know, almost incomprehensible amount of time in the future with the same basic body, but without cultural memory of what we know as humanity. And I think that was a little easier to do on the page because you don't have to actually design collars uh, or <laughs> clothing for everyone. So instead we get this weirdness, like, what do you mean they're lighting their way with just phosphorescent? <laughs> I like the line about them having a, an appropriate relationship uh, to danger uh, in this society. It was a little easier to do that, I think, when you can pick and choose what goes on the page. Uh, but how did the episode look hmm. in regard to infinitely far in the future? It is a studio-bound production at the BBC in 1984. That's what it looks like. Yeah, the one story that would be actively improved by being shot in a quarry. Oh, <laughs> right. it would. Uh. I would give anything if this had been shot in a quarry. It so badly just needs a, a, a metal door and a rock face. That's what this story is crying out for. Yes, mm. it does. Wait, it, it doesn't? I, I, I visualize this as all metal doors and <laughs> rock faces. <laughs> oh, we get the metal doors, we just don't get the rock faces. Yeah, it really is sad, the fact that in two stories' time, we're going to get a lot of location filming in Lanzarote, but it's essentially 
a rock quarry in Lanzarote. It feels like it. <laughs> yeah, but could could you imagine if Planet of Fire had been the studio bound story and Frontios had been the one that had the location footage? What a difference it would have made. Because I genuinely, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm, I'm all here to praise Christopher H. Bidmead, but like, it would look so amazing. Like This would be like regarded as like the Caves of Androzani if it had a bit of location footing in Lanzarote instead of, I don't know, Anthony Ailey messing about in a volcano for no readily apparent reason. It would look yes. incredible. It would. I think you're absolutely right. Because it feels like, and we'll get there, obviously, but I, I think the location filming in Planet of Fire is somewhat wasted because it doesn't really seem to further the story as much as they think it does. Whereas here, it would absolutely do it. It would absolutely do it. I'm just waiting for an episode that's set in an 18th century country house that's at the bottom of a quarry that's clearly been excavated using, like, 1960s technology. <laughs> And then trying to figure out how it got there. <laughs> well, I, I think with the Shudigatwa stories, we may actually get something like that at some point, because that's certainly the sort of mishmash that it feels like that era is moving towards. Based on one story and all the clips I've seen of what's coming, it's like, nah, maybe. <laughs> what else do we like about this? Because I have tons of quotes that I pulled from it, not just from the ones that actually appeared on screen, but also new ones. There's just so much here. There's a good bit of uh, foreshadowing here. I already talked a little bit about Cockerell, how he's introduced, and there's a line saying, like, no one knew how great he would be or something like that. Um, but there's also a good bit of it with just the idea of the gravity. Or uh, the mavity. <laughs> oh, God. Don't <laughs> 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 Don't get started. Um, but just whenever there, there's the bombardments happening and there's just these little lines that Bidme puts in that's like hinting at, and I, I had one pulled up and I lost it, but just hinting at that like, this is this is part of something greater. You know, everyone thinks that that these are happening for a reason and they're being caused by somebody, but they don't quite know what is actually going on and that's the slow kind of realization that the gravis and the tractators are literally pulling meteorites from this asteroid belt down into the planet to hit the colonies yeah it's just a great bit of foreshadowing in here that i really enjoyed and again kind of helps the story along and keeps us interested without giving it all away and you know just one one big uh reveal as it were i guess and i'm glad you brought that up because we do get that info dump in episode four of the doctor having his conversation with the gravis and therefore revealing what the whole scheme was to begin with in front of plantagenet who needs to hear it but it doesn't feel like an info dump on the page Mm -mm. it works really well on the page and i know that some people i've i've heard criticisms of the first scene in the story between brazen and range that their their conversation is very info dumpy because they're telling each other a lot of things they already know like the as chief science officer oh don't go waving your title about with me it's like you're doing that because the audience needs to hear it it doesn't feel that way on the page Mm-mm. it doesn't feel that way on the page at all no, it's, it's a moment to establish 
character and personality and that uh, there's a great line I don't have it in front of me about his idea of good social order is everyone following the directions of the right person even if they're completely incorrect right <laughs> but yeah it didn't feel like an info dump it felt like character development mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think that's the sign of a good writer as opposed to uh, not a bad writer but a mediocre writer or just a workmanly writer if that makes sense I think it does make sense. And on, on a similar kind of vibe, one of the things I'd like to mention is that the difference between a writer like Sir Christopher H. Bibmead and, now what's the polite way of saying hack? Um, I can't think of one. <laughs> a hack writer like Terry Nation um, is that uh, one of the... <laughs> bless him. Um, one of the things about this episode, oh, this story that I love and that really does show that contrast is the way that Christopher H. Bibmead is using... Names. So we have Captain Revere, who is revered. We have Brazen, mm-hmm. who is self-explanatory Brazen. We have Range, who is Range. Like, he's doing all ex- the same, like, you know, the planet Aridus is really dry. You know, he's it's exactly <laughs> yeah. the same tricks that Terry Nation kind of pulls. But it seems much more naturalistic and much more convincing here. So even although it is that kind of same approach, it's a very kind of literal way of having your characters be visible it feels so much more integrated into the society it feels more so much more part of who the characters are and that is kind of the, the exactly what you guys have been saying it's exactly the difference between like a really good writer who can kind of pull that off and well terry nation <laughs> how dare you he gave us the daleks <laughs> how, how dare you besmirch his name yeah i believe it or not i've heard things said to be like that before um speaking of which the doctor i don't think we've talked enough about how the doctor is portrayed in this because that seems to be the thing that the reviewers have in common when they talk about how good this book is, it's that Bidmead helped originate the character of the Fifth Doctor. And by this point in the character's history, he's drifted a little bit from that original remit of an old man trapped in a young man's body. And to go back to that is really kind of a revelation. It's probably one of the reasons why Peter Davison looks at the story and likes it so much, even though it's not his favorite. So what do we think about the Doctor's depiction in this? I was just looking through some of my notes, and I had a couple things that I thought didn't seem quite like uh, the Fifth Doctor. One of them being that he he is kind of... They're talking about the TARDIS, and he, he's kind of sad that it doesn't have any armaments. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the idea that the Doctor is upset that he has he doesn't have weapons. It's like, well, that doesn't seem quite right. And then there's a line that he says, I hate deception, but at the moment we have no other weapon. And I was like, well, the Doctor's regularly, I mean, it's not full-on deception, but he's always... <laughs> you love deception. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's regularly, like, withholding information or skirting around information. The Doctor is a master <laughs> of strategic deception. And, and, mm-hmm. and then later An in artist. this story, is very deceptive. <laughs> oh, yeah. He has a good time with it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoyed the Doctor in this story, but I felt like there were a couple of things that was just like, I don't know if that's quite quite how I think of this doctor but I didn't I didn't mind it I, it's not egregious where I was like that's not him this is this is totally wrong but I was just like hmm I think it does help 
when we get that line when he's describing the TARDIS and he says, as an invasion weapon, I, you'll have to agree it's about as offensive as chicken volleyball. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I just felt ignorant because I didn't know how to say it aloud. Chicken volleyball. Yeah. 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 And it's absolutely brilliant, too. <clears throat> I, I completely agree, though, that there are times you're like, is this the doctor that we know? And it's like, yeah, he's just as bitchy as the fifth doctor always is. Yeah. Less bitchy than the last novelization, though. Oh, that's true. That's as, as we were reading in story order. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you also get, and going back to the way he depicts Tegan, the opening up of their relationship and how much they depend on each other. It's from chapter 10. I just want to read this because I love this, this paragraph. It's right after he has essentially told her to shut up and he's going to go off with the gravis. And she, uh, we get this, Tegan stared at the doctor she thought she knew, the doctor into whose TARDIS she had accidentally stumbled all those eons ago, the doctor she had nursed through his almost fatal regeneration, the doctor who, for all his mumbling absent-mindedness and corkscrew logic, had managed to bring her safely through more perils than she cared to remember. She stared and stared at him. Filling that brief moment of eye contact with all the dumbly outraged and uncomprehending staring she could muster, and from the doctor in return came a swift, barely perceptible wink. <laughs> yes. I adore that moment. <laughs> I just love that. After he's insulted her walk and on screen, her accent. I got it cheap because the walk's not quite right. And then there's the accent, of course. But when it's working well, it's very reliable for keeping track of appointments, uh, financial planning, word processing, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really sad that accent line got cut from the novelization, actually. I was waiting for it, and it's not there! <laughs> yeah, I was too. <laughs> mm. I was too, because that is just brilliant, because you can tell on screen that that just pisses her right oh, off. Oh, yeah. You can, yeah, Janet Field is not acting when she's seen that. Oh, no. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> mm. All right, so we've <laughs> talked a lot about what we like about this book, but... At least two of you said that it feels overly long, and I think it has a few flaws as well. So what would you say those are? Why does it feel overly long, and what would you say the flaws are, if any? I kept thinking of Pirate Planet in terms of both the situation that is ultimately revealed mm -hmm. and the fact that Pirate Planet was so much about strategic sequence of revelation, but all I remember is what was eventually revealed. And I think this will be the same. I was not at all interested in the plot at any point, but I was interested in the premise and what the whole situation was going to turn out to be. But uh, their run, 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 walk, walk, walk to get there, I didn't find particularly engaging, even though it was, even though it was engagingly told, the actual mechanics were completely disposable. Mm. Okay, I could see that there. Yeah, if you replace r running around in corridors with running around in tunnels, then yeah, there's some ways in which this is a very standard Doctor Who story. But it was a lot like Pirate Planet in that not only are our regular protagonists, but also our guest stars are slowly finding out where they actually live, like the actual reality of the planet that they live on. And this sort of series of predatory relationships that they didn't know existed before, whether they are the prey or the predator. But the, the actual way that they find that out isn't, isn't as interesting as, as their disorientation and sort of the weird world building we get along the way about how things are relatable and how they're completely alien to us. Mm -hmm. 
So this is this is ultimately praise because once again, I highly prize the atmospheric sense of disorientation um, <laughs> and the weird setup. But the way we get there doesn't really matter. And so in that way, it did feel a little bit padded, but. I was also not purchasing by the word or by the pound, so right um, <laughs> by weight or by length. <laughs> so I, um, <laughs> I I didn't suffer, uh, but well, I'm glad to hear that. It, yes, <laughs> but it did seem a bit extra. I have always found that the expedition to get the acid jar, yes, drags. Yeah, and it's worse on the screen. Because it takes up the bulk of episode one. And I just couldn't be less there for it if you asked me to be. I just imagined that they were really hard up for mayonnaise and they didn't have any <laughs> lemon juice, no <laughs> vinegar. There's only one source of acid on the entire planet. It's not, it's not gonna whip up right without an acid. <laughs> Doctor, my salad will never be the same. <laughs> you can't make mayonnaise with phosphorus. <laughs> yeah, it is it is it does sag a bit in, in, in places. For all that I was talking before about how uh, the sort of luxuriousness of four twenty five minute episodes means you can do things that, that you can't do in forty five minutes. It also means you have to do things you can't do in forty five minutes, which means a lot of running up and down corridors. Of course it does. It's it's nineteen eighties Doctor Who. And that doesn't really get avoided in the novel, and that's kind of a shame. We could have cut down on that. I, I agree with you as well when you say that like the acid jar sequence just goes on forever. It's it's ridiculous. But at least at least there's a little bit of threat in it. Like on screen, it's just nothing. It's just Janet Fielding and Mark Strickson going, How long until we're out of this? Um, but in the page, there's, there's there's like a bit of threat there, right? There's something which you can at least dig your teeth into. So it's it's not riveting, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, and it actually feels less so. It actually feels more riveting and less long on the page than it does on screen, too. I find anyway. It mm. doesn't drag nearly as much, but it still drags. It was sort of the inverse of the... Terence Dick's structure we're so familiar with, wherein he has a great prologue and then 30 pages of really interesting character and world building set up, and then the engagement level drops off dramatically, and it's just mm -hmm. run, 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 fight, fight, fight. This was run, 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 actually not really fight at the beginning, just run, 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 fine jar, 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 uh, for, for the beginning. And then it became, I thought, significantly more engaging in the, in the later part. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that when you <clears throat> when you step back from the great prose, good characterization, and all of that, the plot itself at times makes no damn sense. But that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. We're used to that from Doctor Who. <laughs> but I've always found, in particular, the episode one cliffhanger to be kind of ridiculous, the TARDIS has been destroyed. It's like, Doctor, you know it hasn't. Mm. You know there's no way that it could have been destroyed just by an asteroid strike. That wasn't true I, back then. I'm sorry, I have to stand in uh, just a little bit there. That is not true. Back then, there was a lot of rumors and a lot of talk about the fact that JNT either wanted to change the TARDIS's shape permanently or actually oh. find a way of getting rid of it altogether. Uh, so there was yeah. actually, a, like, if you were up on your reading, if you read Doctor Who magazine or, you know, enough of the Radio Times, there were a lot of rumors around that time. And again, it's, it's part of, you know, for, for all that he may have been... Uh, 
a questionable character, shall we say. Like, JNT <laughs> unquestionably had skill as a publicist. That's where his real ability lay. And he was laying a lot of groundwork at the time for this. Oh, well, you know, like, maybe there will be the kind of change that you're not expecting. Maybe these things will find a, a different approach or, or whatever it was. So, like, it's easy in retrospect to say that. But honestly, back in the early 80s, that wasn't the case. It really could have been. Yeah. I, I actually what I meant was not so much the Doylean explanation for that as the Watsonian one. Oh, I fair mean, enough. in story, yeah, in story, the Doctor should know that. Of course, that's not going to work. The audience, of course, will look at that and say, oh, "Are they going to be here the rest of their lives?" And that's fine. Yeah. I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. I just have some real trouble with the Doctor actually thinking, <laughs> "Shit, did my ship just get taken out by a rock?" No. How did that happen? It's like, yeah, that should have worked. It is fun, though, whenever we have instances like that. We're like, clearly, yeah, 40 years later, we know the TARDIS is fine. It's it's still dragging the Doctor around time and space. But seeing the way that they create a story and and develop it around the idea that, that his, it has been immobilized or it's been taken away from him, or in this case, it's been blown to bits, but will be put back together. Uh, yes. You know, I that that was at least still fun to see because yeah, like we're not worried. We know they're it's it's gonna be fine. It'll come back together. But seeing the way that the plot kind of carries that and eventually like literally comes together around uh, the Gravis inside the TARDIS, kind of going back inside its Pokeball, um, being <laughs> cut off from its friends. Like yeah, that was a, an, an interesting plot element because yeah, like no one. No one now is actually really worried about it, but having it be what's gonna happen, what's actually gonna happen to it? Where is it at? Are they gonna be here for another story? What's 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 really gonna happen here? Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was interesting. You know, talking about things that we have issue with, and and I always I had a few questions, and some of them just through conversation here, I've kind of come to terms with. But something that I want answered is how did the Gravis and the Tractators? get together in the first place yes (laughs) well it the gravis is described as kind of like a queen bee Mm -hmm. and i assume that the way it works is that you only get some super hyper intelligent creature that controls the rest of them once every several thousand generations or something because these things have been around long enough that they're here at kind of the end of time but they've also been around since well into the past of Turlo's planet. Mm-hmm. And Turlo comes from essentially contemporary Earth time because there's no time travel involved in his being exiled on Earth. That's contemporary time. That's the way I've always read it. Okay. But for his race to have any ancestral memories of it, it means that this infection has been around throughout the universe for ages. It's just never come to any sort of head because... Either the inhabitants of the planet get together and they kill it, or the Time Lords step in. Because there's an open question hanging over this whole story of, did the Time Lords send the Doctor to do this? Because this sounds like kind of their remit. He's really worried for the first time, as you pointed out, Dalton, about them knowing that he's interfered. It's like, but he's at the end of time. Yeah. Why would it matter that he's interfering at the end of time? So... Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting. That they've been, uh, the Gravis says they've been stranded out there for 500 years. It may just been that they were put there 
mm-hmm. <laughs> by somebody, possibly the Time Lords, and maybe that's what the Doctor doesn't want. Maybe that's why that injunction about going too far in the future exists, because when the Time Lords want to get rid of something, they put it in the far future, and then mm-hmm. they tell their people not to go visit it. <laughs> sure, have woodlice drive a planet around. Why not? Yeah. Those miners drive a planet around, yeah. Everybody drives a planet around in the future. I assume they got together because the lights were low, the drinks were flowing, you know, <laughs> it was sunset, like a gravis and like a collection of wood lice. I mean, you know, things are going to happen. That's just it's how quite it is. the key party. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you make it sound like a dungeon at a gay bar. I guess <laughs> it is that. I guess it is. I've said too much. I should absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And so have I, for that matter, the fact that I would even know what that is. But yes, yeah, (laughs) I I have to admit, if we, that's one of those bits that I had some difficulty with because it's like, okay, so the Gravis has pulled the TARDIS together. So much better on the page. I hate that sequence on screen. It looks so stupid. (laughs) that he pulls the TARDIS together he is conked out because it's formed around him he's got that lack of connection they take him to another planet and they apparently just roll him out the door (laughs) because they don't dare open the door while the while well wait a minute they have to they have to open the door just so that they can get out so wouldn't that reconnect him to the other tractators but then they take him to another planet they roll him out the door because we assume he's still somewhat intelligent on his own without the other tractators right that's how queen bees work Mm -hmm. i guess i don't know they just put him in time out yeah (laughs) yeah i'm i'm overthinking it like i usually do (laughs) i really am there's another bit there that was on the tip of my tongue though having to do with that same thing and it's gone. God damn it. I hate it when that happens. It was something that was really bothering me about the Gravis and the... Tra- oh, right. Tractator. The word. <laughs> I I had an Allison moment way back when, when I first got this book, because Allison, you always talk about not knowing how something is pronounced when you read it, because you haven't heard it I was kind of holding pronounced. my breath, finding out what kind of moment this was going to be. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good one. It's a good one, because it's something that readers do quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Those of us who read a lot, you see a word on the page, and you're like, how do you pronounce that? For the longest time, I, I mispronounced the word neologism, because I'd never heard it, mm. and I thought it was neologism. The curse of the precocious child. Who yes, exactly. It's well read, but doesn't know how to say anything aloud. I didn't think it was tractator. I thought it was tractator. Hmm. And I prefer that to this day. In all fairness, it's not like uh, the, the term comes up a lot in daily conversation. No, that's Not true. in your conversation. Well, not for you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I'm a loser. I may be a loser, but I did not compose the line, a well-bowled boulder. Mm. <laughs> I have some dignity. Yes. Well, it's better than what we get on I thought screen. about asking for my money back for this free PDF. That's the last negative thing I have to say. Really? Aw. Come now. Okay, a well-bowled bowler. That's, yeah. that is below a dad joke. That's an uncle joke. Yeah, I, I will give Bidby credit for the fact <laughs> that offense. one of the dad jokes that he includes on screen about the gravity of the situation, excuse me, the mavity of the situation, is uh, ch- <laughs> it's t- changed to an internal thought on the doctor's part. Mm-hmm. 
He's like, yeah, I, I'm not in the mood for jokes right now, so I'm not going to say that aloud. He does say it aloud on screen, because how else are you going to get it out there? But yeah. Anything else we disliked? Mm. Well, I think the silence is instructive. <laughs> <laughs> I think that tells us everything we need to know. Oh, I, one other small little thing, and then, then we can go to Goodreads. How do they know where bodies are to pull them down into the earth? Mm. Animal magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of dad jokes, thank you for that, JJ. Uh, hey, All right. You. Okay. Oh, All right. You, I, I will say, and this is something that all, we were talking about body horror, it comes across every time I read this book, that when they are pulling the humans with their gravity, it's to an end goal of pulling their bodies apart so that they can use those body parts. Because when they have Norna, for instance, yeah, on screen it just feels like, oh, she's standing against a wall with a special effect over this. She's not really in danger. On the page, she and every other human on Frontios is in a lot of danger. They're about to be ripped apart. It is a horrible way to go. But yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, so pleasant dreams. So, on that note, shall we go to Goodreads? Yeah. I think we can. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast or want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before we're discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. Weirdly enough, we had nobody contribute to our discussion thread for this one. So that's weird. But that's fine. There are plenty of reviews of it because the average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.53. The reviews quoted here have been edited for length, so everyone, but keep them coming. John Arnold gives it four stars and says, If you wanted a textbook on how to write a novelization, Frontios is pretty much it. The original story is one of the 20th century show's neglected gems. An eerie tale of an isolated human colony under siege that perhaps is compromised by the limitations of TV, the TV show. Boy, howdy. Midmead takes his original story and, assisted by Nigel Robinson's editorial directive, frees it of those constraints. Yes, thank you, Nigel Robinson. Most obvious is the writer being freed of budgetary worries. He's better able to get the sense of struggle across now that he doesn't have to worry about how many extras or the quality of achievable effects there are. He can bring an epic sense of scale to simple achievement of surviving, painting with a few words that what we see is the remnants of a colony of originally thousands. The tension of people under permanent, almost unimaginable pressure becomes more understandable even before the attacks are considered. He's free to give the impression that all this is being held together by sticky tape, and that sticky tape is peeling away with supplies running out. The other area where this is really effective is the portrayal of the book's antagonists, the Tractators. There was originally a notion of gracefulness to the creatures, hence professional dancers being employed to work the costumes. As realized on screen, they were overly clumsy, capable of a little bit of slow shuffle. Bidmead rectifies that with relish, freeing the creatures from these 
design limitations, and he doesn't limit it to simple physical capabilities, the conception of the Tractator culture is superior in a way the show's time slot would never have allowed. The Tractators employ actual machinery on screen, though they use humans as batteries. Bidmead's vision is far more relentlessly logical and stomach-churning. Instead of scavenging machinery, where do they get that technological capability? They purely scavenge humans, constructing their machinery purely from meat and bone. There's a zestful relish to the horror of the translation of mining machines, again, more effective than would ever have been allowed on screen. The condiment of the evening is zestful relish. <laughs> yes, exactly. Daniel Cookwell also gives it four stars and says it's not quite as rich as Bitmeat's novelizations of Legopolis and Castrovalva. But it is the most biting and graphic of the former script editor's three Doctor Who scripts. Bidme delights in exploring more of the grotesque aspects of Frances that didn't make it into the televised version, and his enthusiasm for the material is nicely reflected in the prose. It also concludes with one of my favorite final sentences, concise, to the point, and very cute. And speaking of uh, concise and to the point, Finally, Shamesdeen, Shamesdeen, I guess, gives it five stars and says, Doctor Who wins. <laughs> five stars. There's not even a period. There's not even a period. Not even a full stop. All right. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give Frontios? <laughs> Doctor Who pawns, you noob. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I, I would agree with Daniel and the, and the first uh, reviewer. I'd give this one a four. Yeah, Bidmead's writing is, is really effective. We definitely get a lot of atmosphere in this one. Some ridiculously horrifying. Even, even though the descriptions aren't super detailed around what's going on, I think it's still super effective describing these human machine things the as you called it the uh google translate machine the head and the arm on the pendulum <laughs> like oh just oh, yeah. it's so fucking creepy and it's so effective so i i i really enjoyed this book I, i'm like allison i don't know how much i'll remember later but reading this now i i really enjoyed it and uh yeah so four stars okay and allison Dalton, what if that is how Google Translate actually works? <laughs> you think it's all coding and dictionaries, but no. It's just scratchy bones in a cave. <laughs> well, so I think what I will, like I said, retain is this concept of the painful long path of knowledge, which actually sounds like a terrible review. <laughs> I will retain the painful long path back to knowledge, but... This idea of people who don't, who have a written culture, not an oral culture, but suddenly are punched down to whatever they have left over from an atrophied oral culture and rebuilding from there. And they're still recognizably human, but their feet are planted in the air is what I'll retell. So a story I have no interest in, well told, I'll say. So I'll give like 3.25, which is perhaps cruel. Uh, but JG already resents me, so uh, <laughs> oh, I love you dearly. How could you say such a thing? <laughs> oh, you, what did you say? You, you said we're all on your list. Oh well, <laughs> oh, the list changes all the time. I wouldn't worry about that. Maybe we'll drop off. 
Not today, though. <laughs> and besides, Jim has said that about us, too. So we're on everybody's Good Lord, how many list. lists are we on? <laughs> Twelve. We're on many. And JG, what is your uh, rating for this one? Uh, I'm going to give this 4.5. It's not quite perfect. It does sag a little bit in places. Um, but I love how visceral it is. I love how easily uh, Christopher H. Bidmead is able to conjure this world and these characters who are trapped in this kind of essentially uncopable with situation. Uh, I think it uses all of the regulars really well. I think Frontius, Frontier, just like Terry Nation, is a great mm-hmm. concept for a planet uh, also being driven around just like Terry Nation. I'm sorry, the Terry Nation parallels just keep coming. It's wonderful. I, I really, really love it. I think the fact that this is the last time Christopher H. Bidmead writes for Doctor Who, other than one mediocre Big Finish production, is a real tragedy i think he gets doctor who and he gets these characters in a way that isn't necessarily universally popular but it completely chimes with what i love about this era and i i think that translates incredibly well to the pitch so yeah i'll give it four and a half and as for me i agree uh four and a half was always in my head for this one because you're right it's not perfect and in fact There are some things that if you think about them too terribly long, they kind of fall apart on you. But then that's true of almost every Doctor Who story. Every Doctor Who story does this. This is one of the few books that makes me actively have difficulty watching the televised version because I keep expecting it to rise to the level of the book. The other one being David Whitaker's novelization of Doctor Who and the Daleks because nothing gets quite as good as that novelization and the televised story, even when it's edited down and colorized and given this bombastic musical score, just doesn't do it. Yeah, but Frontios, yeah, this book is so, so fucking good. If we talk about novelizations that are kind of just okay or average in the 3.5 range as just being script to page. Yeah, this doesn't do that. This transforms the story significantly so that if you really want to see what a Doctor Who story looks like, if it it doesn't have any budgetary concerns or worries about actors going missing in the 1990s or anything like that, this is the one you should read. So, 4.5. So, thank you all. Mm Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we will cover both versions, and yes, we mean both versions, of Resurrection of the Daleks. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Instagram. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will. Just like failure-proof technology on a colony ship. Email me directly at dwtargetbc at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line, so don't ignore it. JG, where can we find your podcast? Well, I am on all the usual places, so uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. With Talking Trek to You, uh, a noob and an expert going through the original classic series of Star Trek, uh, and also Beatles Stuffology, where myself and another co-host go through the Beatles song by song, and yeah, we're just there. Everywhere. You can't get rid of us, really. Well, we don't want to get rid of you, so hopefully we can have you on the program again quite soon. Will you suck us down through the earth? 
Mm. I, I mean, Alison, what am I to say to that? <laughs> okay, I, I didn't plan the phrasing of that ahead of time and apologize. You can edit that out, right? <laughs> no, no, no. As a matter of fact, I'm going to add to you it can, even but worse. You can, I will not, and I'll even paraphrase a Futurama line and say, glory holes do not work that way. Anyway, <laughs> thank you very I might edit that out. All right, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.